Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. One of the developing themes of these podcast episodes relates to the varied lives and stories brought to the stage by H&H musicians. People such as these come together in commitment, focus, and determination to bring life to a work of art, but they arrive from vastly different lives, having traveled often surprising paths. I think an appreciation of their ability on stage can only be increased by learning more of what they do off stage. At its core, the Handel and Haydn Society is a choral society, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to chat with one of our singers. However, she'll likely talk about more than just singing. Soprano Cassandra Extavor is a member of our chorus and has sung nationally and internationally with ensembles such as Tafel Music and La Capilla Real de Madrid. Cassandra also teaches at Harvard University, which she will tell us about shortly. Cassandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Glad to have you. You're a soprano, which means something specific during these times. What has the shutdown meant for you, and what has it been like? It's meant no performing. It's meant the cancellation of dozens of performances, including a tour this past summer, a lot of anguished conversations with colleagues. It meant the last performance I did was a Mozart Requiem, where we found out less than 24 hours before the performance that there was going to be no audience, but we were going to be on stage live streaming it. That was a bizarre experience just in the second week of March or so. And uh, it, it felt certainly at the time, and even more so in retrospect, pretty creepy to be singing the Mozart Requiem. Singers will be the last ones to get back to it. We're going to be the last ones to come back. So it's a really sobering thought and uh, it's a huge artistic loss. And it's a, you know, for all musicians, I think making music is part of our being. It's part of our self-expression. And that's a huge part that is removed for some of us. When did you start singing and had you had musical studies before that time? I started singing uh, fairly late in life, but I started music shortly after I could walk. My father was a musician, he was a percussionist, and performed regularly and wanted me and my siblings to perform with him. So my first instrument was the steel pan. Steel pan is a national instrument of Trinidad and Tobago, and my father's family is from Trinidad. My godfather is a pan maker, so he made me this pair of pans that I learned to play you know, at the age of four or five or so. That was my first instrument. And then in elementary school, like many children, I learned recorder and I learned basically how to read music. And I picked up the flute, the modern transverse flute, at about 10. And I became very serious about the flute. And after just a few years, I decided that I was going to grow up and be a professional classical flautist. That was my goal. And singing came fairly late. At the beginning of undergraduate studies, the first flute chair position was occupied in the orchestra I wanted to play in. And uh, wind and brass players in orchestras, there are very few of them, and so the positions are limited. And I just happened to notice an audition for a chorus, and I decided to do it sort of on a whim. I hadn't really 
I mean, I could put a tune together, but I certainly wasn't a singer. I didn't think about the voice as an instrument. And I sang with this choir, which is a large choir, and then the director of the choir, his name was John Tuttle, invited me eventually to do more and more solo work with the group, to sing in a chamber group that he had, and then that gave me a realization that I had an instrument that could be developed, and then I auditioned for chapel music, and that was my first professional singing gig, and from then on I decided to take it pretty seriously. Was your plan regarding the role of music in your life to have it be your livelihood? Were there other options during that time? My dream was certainly that I would be a professional musician and that that would be what I dedicated myself to full-time. That was really the only career goal I've ever had as a, at, at any stage of my life where I thought, I want to grow up and do this. It didn't end up happening that I am a full-time musician, although I am lucky enough to be able to perform. For a number of reasons, it's not that another career plan took its place. It's that I discovered interest in some other thing and discovered different ways to combine my interest in music and my interest in these other things and was able to sort of keep doing that at every juncture in my life. When a change was needed, I was able to find a way to continue to pursue music as well as pursue other interests. I used to watch this television show called Fame and just be so envious of these kids who I thought had the perfect life because all they did all day was play music and practice and perform. And that was what I wanted my life to be like. I loved playing the flute, but my family didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have private lessons. I didn't go to the conservatory. I learned to read music in elementary school in the public school band program. And then I would go to the library and take out recordings of classical music and flute repertoire and listen to it. And I would take out scores and try to learn them and try to sound like what the recording sounded like. I would record myself on a tape recorder and play it back and try to accompany myself. And I thought, maybe if I can practice like this, I'll be good enough to audition for a conservatory when I finish high school. And then maybe I can get the training that apparently is needed for this sort of career, as far as I could tell from the TV show thing. But by the time I got to undergraduate, I had discovered that I was interested in something else as well. I had a professor during my undergrad who was a composer. I asked him, how does one become a composer? And he said, only if you have to. And I don't think he meant necessity. I think he meant, you know, you have something to say and you need to say it. There's an element of resilience and inner necessity to express yourself. And it sounds like that's your story. It sounds like you wouldn't be stopped by circumstance. I think it's very admirable. You've sung with groups in the U.S., but also in Canada, Spain, and the U.K. I'm curious if there were elements you could group into an approach that was evident in different locales and whether they were similar or different to what you experienced with H&H? That's an interesting question. The times when I lived in different countries, I was at different points in my life, different points in my career. And so those things are also reflected in my experiences of being a musician in different locations. So, for example, when I lived in Spain, I was a student. Now in Handlin Haydn, all of my colleagues are professional adults. Of course, there are always young people coming who may be recently out of their studies, but it's a different uh, demographic and a different stage. Having said that, my experience in Spain was probably the most welcoming professional musical environment that I've lived in. As a relative newcomer to the sort of classical and early performance practice scene in Madrid, which is a city, you know, 
seven or eight million people now, I was within a, a year or so able to be connected with a lot of different opportunities to work. And I had an experience there that I haven't in the same way in other places, which is just an extreme generosity of spirit in the colleagues, musicians towards each other. I got at least as many references for jobs from other sopranos as I did from musicians who didn't happen to have my instrument or my voice part. And that hasn't been replicated in other places. When I live in Spain, I also sort of was half living in Basel where I was, where my voice teacher was. And because it was very influenced by the conservatory there, I also experienced a greater openness to actively learning from and listening to and trying to incorporate and blend the approaches and practices that were happening in other countries with what we were doing in the country we were living in. I haven't experienced that in Boston. And there may be something there to sort of extrapolate to the larger uh, cultural differences between America and other places in the world. Uh, America is a large country. It's a powerful country. It's a famous country. It's a loud country. It's a country that focuses more on itself than it does on the rest of the world in many respects. And I find that to be the case musically as well as societally. And Boston in particular, I find the music scene in Boston very interested in the local music scene in Boston, almost to the exclusion of serious interest or paying attention to what's happening in the rest of the country, let alone the rest of the world. And that's a difference in sort of musical attitude from other places that I've lived. Do you find that that is impacted in any way by the foreign musicians who come, at least at H&H, come and collaborate? I mean, our music director obviously is English, who comes from his own choral ensemble and from a country with a thousand-year-old choral history. And we have others within the group and guests who join us to either direct or play along or sing along with us who are foreign-born or live and work internationally. Do you find that changes the approach that you're speaking to? I find it has minimal impact because there is very little sustained engagement before or after given performance with these performers and musicians who come from other places to work with Sandlin Haydn. For some members of the chorus and orchestra, they may have a longer, more sustained, you know, musical and intellectual exchange with these people that will really inform the program that they're putting together and how they want to do it and what that might mean for the future. But for the majority of the musicians on stage, these are just soloists and uh, directors and other collaborators who have been brought in for a special project, who most of the individual musicians will not interact with musically in any serious way. So I don't find that it has a, a huge impact from that point of view. I'd like to move to a slightly different topic at this point, if you'll permit me. Okay. So at this point, it's important to mention that during your music studies, you added another path on your journey, which you've alluded to and which we have skillfully avoided mentioning by name, but now it's time. I left this bit ambiguous in the introduction, but could you tell us what you do at Harvard? Sure. I'm a professor of molecular and cellular biology and of organismic and evolutionary biology. In practice, what that means is I run a research lab, and I also have to give classes to the students there. Okay, so I'd like to amplify that a bit, because... First of all, I didn't know this about you until relatively recently, right? And uh -huh. 
I don't know how many people of the 2,500 who come to Symphony Hall to see us sing and play know this. <laughs> so I think it's important to mention you're a full professor at Harvard. You had your own lab. That's right. And you co-direct a new yeah. $10 million research center there. And that's a really big deal. Right. You perform at a high professional level, but you have not only a sort of other identity, but one that is internationally regarded and completely formed and defined. Do you feel like you lead a double life? I do, and uh, but not in any negative sense. I feel like I'm very lucky to participate in two different, largely non-overlapping professional international worlds. And having that privilege is really a blessing because it gives me the opportunity to express many more parts of myself than I could if I were just participating in one of them. So I don't want to insult our listeners who could understand the technical aspects of what you do, but it's unlikely that I can. Is it possible for you to explain to me and to anyone listening who is like me what the focus of your research is as though I was a five-year-old? Yes, of course. What we study are how genes tell cells how to do things. That's why I became interested in biology when I was an undergraduate student. When I learned that inside cells, they have this stuff. We call it a molecule. That's just a name for a really small thing. And this molecule called DNA apparently is like an instruction book and it tells the cell what to do. It has the instructions for everything a cell could ever need or want to do in its whole life. The cell just has to go to the right part of the DNA, find the right instruction, just called a gene, and just execute it. And I thought that was amazing. And I wanted to understand how the cell knew which genes it should look for. How does the cell know what it needs at a given moment? And then I learned that it gets even more mysterious to understand this problem when you realize that in an animal, let's say, you have a little dog, all the cells in that dog are descended from a single original cell, a fertilized egg that then became the embryo that then developed into that dog. Or you, Guy, were once a single cell. I don't believe it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I know it seems hard. With your many, many cells now. So many. And yet, there was a time not too long ago when you were just one cell. You were a fertilized egg growing inside the womb of your mother, and that egg divided, and it became two cells. Then they both divided, and then it became four cells. And this repeated a lot of times, and then we had Guy Fishman, Master Cellist. Now, the amazing thing in this, beyond the fact that you are now so many more cells than you used to be, is that because all the cells in your body are descended from that single ancestral cell where you began your life, all the cells in your body now have the exact same DNA in them. That means all the cells in your body have the exact same set of instructions. And yet, we know that not every single cell in your body is doing the exact same thing. Your fingers are not doing the exact same thing as the cells in your nose. And the cells in your eyebrows are not doing the same thing as the cells in your liver. But why aren't they doing the exact same thing? Because they all have the exact same instruction book. It's like if I go to your music library and I say, oh, I see, you have all the complete works of Bach and all the complete works of Handel, and you come to my music library and you see I have the same thing, but then you hear me practice and I'm never singing the Bach. I'm only ever singing Handel. Why not? Why aren't you and I making the exact same music if we have the exact same library? So as a scientist, the challenge of understanding why different cells inside the same organism 
do different things with the genes they have, even though the genes they have are exactly the same. This study is developmental genetics. It's the study of the genetics that controls the development of multicellular organisms. My lab studies developmental genetics. We want to understand how these genes work. What are the genes that tell the cells to do different things during embryonic development? And further than that, we want to know where these genes came from. Genes just don't drop out of the sky from nowhere into genomes, into cells. They are created through chemical processes, and then they change over time. That's evolution. We want to understand how genes work and how genes evolved, where they came from in the first place, and how they changed over the more than 500 million years that animals have been on this planet, so that not every single animal looks exactly the same, even though all animals that are present on the planet now descended from a single last common ancestor. That's what my lab does. Wow. Um, that is incredibly interesting. I want to take one more swing at tooting your horn, if you don't mind. You spearheaded some groundbreaking research in this area. There was a belief about how genes and cells interacted that was held for a long time, and you spearheaded the changing of that belief. Is that basically accurate? I think probably what you're thinking of is the work that I started doing as a postdoc. After I finished my PhD, I moved first to Greece and to England, and there began working seriously on this idea that I think the core of the idea is what got me the job at Harvard, and then carrying the idea through to fruition through experiments is what got me my full professorship there. Essentially, the core of this idea is to ask what sorts of genetic mechanisms. So a genetic mechanism is just a way that a gene tells a cell to do something. How does, how does it do that? What sorts of genetic mechanisms might have been responsible for, in the very first animal that lived on Earth, for making sure that that animal could make eggs and sperm? Making eggs and sperm is a critical thing that animals need to make sure they get right because otherwise that's the end of the road for them in evolution. So from the time I was a graduate student, I thought that the cells that make eggs and sperm, which we call germ cells, I thought these cells must be really special. I find it the most interesting to think about the evolution of these cells that allow the reproduction of species. So at the time that I was a graduate student, there was a thought that there was one specific type of genetic mechanism that made sure that animals had eggs and sperm. And the thought was that this mechanism, mechanism number one, was the way that most animals did it and the way that an ancestral animal probably did it. And the simplest way of saying it is that I read a lot of papers and I came to a different conclusion. <laughs> and then I did a lot of experiments that supported my hypothesis, which was that the mechanism that had been thought to be the exception, the rare way of making germ cells, was probably the most common way of making germ cells and also probably the ancestral way that an ancient ancestral animal might have made its germ cell. Interesting. You run a lab at Harvard. What is that like? What is it like to run a lab? Running a lab is like running a startup. You have to have an idea. You have to convince other people to come on board the idea before you have any output. You have to convince funders to fund the idea before you have anything to show for it. Once you get some results, you have to make sure people know about it. You have to go out and tell people. You have to publish your results. 
And then on the back of that success, you hope that funders continue to invest more money and you have to hope that more people will want to join your venture because you can't do your science alone. You also are head of human resources for your own lab. You have to hire your own people and fire people. You're also the development office. You have to do all the fundraising. You're also the finance office. You have to keep track of all the finances. You're also publicity and social media. You have to make sure that people know about the work. So basically, when you run a research lab at a research institute, or in my case, a research university, you are the head of every department in a startup business. Are there correlations between science and music? Uh, is music at all like science the other way around? There are many aspects that are that are very similar. People who are drawn to music and to science tend to be creative people. They're people who want to figure something out and bring something new to the thing that they're fascinated with. Just as there are scientists who are really not very concerned with sort of fame or fortune or other people knowing what they're doing, they really just want to figure out the answer for their own curiosity. And there are also scientists who are driven by Nobel Prizes and recognition and public recognition of discovery. I know many artists some of whom are extremely driven by performance. Their goal is to share or to be admired by a public and many other musicians who are outstanding artists who are really driven by the very personal experience of doing the music for themselves or with a very small, intimate group of people. They're not driven by the performance aspect, although they may perform. So in that sense, the creative drive is shared by musicians and scientists. And another important thing that I think is a real commonality between the professional practice of music and the professional practice of science is that even though both of them can very easily be collaborative enterprises, you're working with other musicians together, you're working with other scientists together in a team, the preparation to be able to participate is solitary. No one can practice for you. No one can do your scales for you. No one can memorize the periodic table for you. It's going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of time working on your own, and you have to want it enough to be able to do that. And that is another commonality between musicians and scientists. The two groups to which you belong demand a certain level of devotion and commitment. Uh, was your devotion to another discipline a source of any struggle in your studies and professional development or a resource, uh, especially amongst your mentors, your colleagues, and your friends? Perhaps not unlike you, most people who I have done music with don't realize what my other job is. And most of my scientist colleagues don't know about my singing job. Hmm. I don't take pains to hide it, but both of them are very consuming and intense practices on their own. And other things don't really come up in discussion. And I also enjoy having that slight separation. As I was saying earlier, it allows me to be more different parts of myself in a day or in a week or in a month than I could if I were just doing one of them. And doing one of them, you know, when I'm in rehearsal or on stage, it just requires that I use a largely separate set of skills and attentions and energies. And it provides me with a very important break from parts of myself that I need to draw on to run my lab and vice versa. So doing one is a break from the other one, which means I get a little bit of energy. 
I'd like to hazard an assumption that you are a very busy person. Considering this, what role does performing at H&H have in your life? It's been, and it continues to be, a real privilege and a real pleasure. The musical quality per unit time is incredibly high. The colleagues are very professional, very collegial. The programming is great. And the audiences are very appreciative. The spaces that we get to perform in are fantastic. So it's more than worth it for me to make sure that I have the time to work with H&H as often as they would like to invite me to work with them. It's absolutely much more than worth it, despite the fact that it does mean that, yes, I am very busy and I have to plan my time long in advance, but it's a fantastic opportunity and one that I definitely, I, it's hard to imagine. Most of my life in Boston has, has involved in innovation, and I hope that for as long as I remain in Boston, I'll be able to do so as well. I'm really glad to have had this opportunity to speak with you, Cassandra. It's plainly evident that our collective IQ on stage increases dramatically when you come on. But in seriousness, it's fascinating to learn more about your life and the work you do in addition to your singing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Guy. I hope when the virus is over, you'll come by the lab someday. I would love that. Cassandra Extavour is a member of the Handel and Haydn Society Chorus. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for previous episodes, as well as supplemental material to this one, including biographical information and photos of Cassandra's lab. I hope you join me for the next episode.